0: Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's Fan Club on Foo Bar Radio.
1: We're off. We're off. We're all warm. Um, Natalie was just about to tell us how warm she is, and Nathaniel's warm. I'm cold. Oh, yeah. Um, but I guess I'm uh, warm up, I suppose. You,
2: I'll tell you what I think it is with me, Nick. I think it's because I was just boasting, swanking to Natalie earlier that I've got behind me. A heated, a heated clothes horse with
1: heated rails. It's, it's new, forty nine ninety nine. Well, it's uh, so you've, you're renovating your laundry room then.
2: Well, you know, just uh, the, the other one basically collapsed, so we've we've replaced it with a new clothes horse, which has heated rails.
1: Um, okay, so it's a clothes horse with heated rails. But what that does is um, it it dries your clothes quicker, right?
2: That's the idea, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. I remember I used to have heated floors. Oh, yeah. David Trent used to visit. I mean, I am a mess. (laughs) As as humans go, you know, if it's not... If it's it's not... I don't know. I, I, I struggle with daily things. And laundry is, I think, laundry is the absolute... I mean, you do it every day, right?
2: I love it. Every other day.
1: A laundry is the worst thing for me. And in actual fact, I've got a whole bunch of clothes. And um, well, I'll wash the clothes. I've got nowhere to put them. I've got no storage in my flat, which is part of what I've been sort of, like, aiming to sort of deal, you know, sort out. And so I will wash clothes and then I will... Leave them in a pile, and then the pile will get moved round and round. And I just step over the pile of clothes because I've got nowhere to put the clothes. I'm just going to throw all my clothes out. I've, I've just I, i've I've bought myself a velour tracksuit, <laughs> which I am going to wear every day. And when that gets dirty, I'm going to buy myself another velour tracksuit. I'm just going to wear velour tracksuits now.
2: it like you're in Goodfellas. They yeah. have those, don't they, when they're relaxing at home.
1: Yeah, or a um, '90s Missy Elliott video—one, <laughs> one of the two. Um,
2: I think that's a good look for you. I think that's.
1: Uh... We'll we'll see. I'm looking forward to it arriving. It was, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but David Trent used to come and visit me in my old flat, which I rented, which was you know, thank God I don't live there now because it would have never have been able to afford to live there. But um, I lived in this basically me and my girlfriend split up <laughs> um, I needed to move to a, my own flat I was staying, I was living at her so I had to find my own place and um, uh, m- my agent helped me which was very good of her which is beyond her job uh, and she found me I think we did it all in one day there was like uh, 10 uh, properties to look at in one area, and I did them all in one day. And I, it was something like the third place that I looked at. I was just like, right, I want to live in this place. And then um, I did all the others, and then I went back and looked at the third place again. I was just like, This is the place. Signed all the stuff, got it. And then it was like, This is the most expensive place in London to live. In. <laughs> why didn't you? Uh, why did you? <laughs> you know how much I make. <laughs> Why why did you send me here? I'm literally... I'm I'm going through a break-up. I can't look after myself. I've never had to do... And I ended up living in this place for... Yeah. But it had this huge heated floor. And David Trent would come over and I'd have done my laundry. And rather than hang it up, I would literally just throw it all on the floor, turn the heating on and then leave the house. (laughs) <laughs> by, the, by the time I came back, my pants were warm. <laughs> they were, you know, everything was dry. You know, uh, I, think, I
2: think a warm pair of pants off a radiator or the floor. Like small. <laughs> <All the> floor. <laughs> to Be honest, if, if the pants are warm in my <clears> throat> throat> floor, I'd be worried. I wouldn't want to pick them up. Like, oh, I don't know. That's that feels wrong.
1: They were just... But I didn't, I didn't lay them out flat. Well, I did. I, I got into a habit of laying everything down flat and just putting the heating on.
2: Jab it like it was a dead body? Like you can make out a human shape? No. Have <laughs> a top and some trousers?
1: No, it was like, yeah, but maybe it was like someone had fallen asleep in a bundle of clothes, <laughs> just a pair of socks to out at the bottom. But, um, it was it like worked. a huge, huge bundle of clothes in the middle of the floor, so half of them would be hot and the other half would still be wet.
2: You have to uh, get the ones from the bottom. Be like you sort of try. like cooking, I suppose. You try and No, but like them.
1: half of the same pair of pants, you know, they were like <laughs> they were like camouflage only with damp.
2: Yeah, um, that's what Two Face wears. I reckon he wears them. He, he pisses off, half on of his more, pants quite, at quite night. nice, and there's some that are just a bit sort of claggy on his evil side. They piss him Not, off, or his
1: good side.
2: His good. So it depends on uh, because mid-
1: obviously, uh, uh, with a lot of evil people in this world. Uh, there are no repercussions. Um, that's something to. I'm in such a. I'm in a bad mood. Um, anyway, what's your name? But um, my name's Nick. This is Nathaniel Metcalf. You're listening to Fan Science Family, Fan Size Fan Club. What <laughs> is that right? Like um, that. But we were talking about. So you. So you've got a heated laundry rack. First world so fan it. club, tell your friends. Second world fan club, tell your friends. For the love of God, just tell your friends. So you got a heated laundry
2: <laughs> today, and now I think it's on now. Uh, but I think now I've realised. I kept thinking, oh, it's a bit hot." I think it's. I think it's also obviously eating the room as well.
1: Yes, yeah. well that's well, it's it heated. Makes
2: sense. Uh, but, so I think might be too hot. I might have to go and turn it off in a bit. Um, well,
1: So, I, uh, when I lived in Seven Sisters, I had no money. And um, uh, and then I had a lot of money, and now I'm in between. I'm not, it's not Seven Sisters, but it's not the, the glory days of uh, Uncle Heavy Entertainment loaded uh, Eat Your Heart Out. Bang, 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 bang. Now it's yeah,
2: like...
1: These are the food by years. These are the food by years. These are the COVID slash food by years. Um, but, um, but when I lived in Seven Sisters, there was no money and uh, we couldn't afford heating. So so in terms of laundry, I have must, t- must say this so many times, but we had one pair of trousers. And if the trousers got dirty, you would wash them and cancel all of your plans, <laughs> <laughs> And then you'd let it drip dry <laughs> on a cold radiator. <laughs> <laughs> and, um,
2: it's on a cold radiator. Yeah. put them anywhere.
1: Yeah, but it yeah. hangs on a radiator, do oh, not
2: yeah,
1: yeah. Well, you might... It, the, anywhere that we've already established that is that it's in a ball on the floor. And unless it's a heated floor, what's the point in that? Yeah. You just get a wet carpet.
2: I'll tell you what, if they're not dry by winter, we'll put the heating on. How's that?
1: <laughs> we couldn't afford the heating. We didn't, I don't even know if the heating worked. What we ended up doing, or what I ended up doing, and I can't, I've always had like this um, deep-seated fear of electric blankets. What right, do you mean? I think the old ones were dangerous. You'd hear horror stories of people falling asleep with their electric blankets on them. But um, I bought myself an electric sheet... Uh, and then what you did was you could sit in... This is 2008 or 9 You'd switch your electric heat sheet on, and you'd keep yourself warm in bed, and Then you wouldn't need to heat the rest of your house. You could just literally heat your, your, your bed and keep warm that way. And now I'm in a position where I've got this flat, which is very cold, with huge windows... So you know it's um, it, it catches you by surprise because you're in bed and it's all very warm and you come out of bed and then your whole bed your whole house is absolutely freezing and just makes you stay in bed for longer. <laughs> but there's nothing to get up for except for obviously if fan, fan, fan club once a week. Third week in a row I've been late in my own flat. <laughs> but it's a different reason every time. Okay. But you know, um my parents have had the first jab.
2: Hooray, that's good. How about you? My parents have had jab number one and uh I guess somewhere between ten ten weeks away or something till they get their next one, I guess.
1: Yes. Um what does that what does it mean for society? Um in what okay. we're going to... Well, apparently, everyone can still get COVID, right? Even if they've got the jab, they can pass it on. They just...
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I think it reduces it, doesn't it? So, I think that it's meant to reduce it by some some degree. But I guess no one knows at the minute, do they? Because it's like they're going, "Oh, well, we've done all these." You know, the, you keep hearing about how they have vaccinated. Is it like it... twelve or thirteen million people?
1: Yeah, you know, the vaccination against the South African strand is good for up to about ten percent, and then it's just as bad.
2: I think it's more than that, eh?
1: I don't know. It's difficult to know. I you go on the news, and that's what I heard often. I the think news. a lot of
2: stuff on the news feels like a bit kind of they're drumming it up. All the sort of science people I've, I've watched seem to be saying that it's it actually does quite a bit, or they don't actually know to what extent it does it. But it's like you know, almost the thing is, you know, if everyone has it, then it's gonna the transmission's gonna lower anyway. So you're going to be far less likely to get it. And even if it doesn't, they'll just update the jab like they do the flu jab. So you could have another one in the autumn. Right. So I, think there's, I think there's still, you know, I think we're still on track. And I think a lot of that's the media going, getting a bit worried about it when it's probably all right.
1: But it's weird that it's the media getting worried about it when it's, when it's the live press launch. You know, it's the live uh, government update from number 10. So that's not the press. That's just that is just the news that is showing what is happening live.
2: Yeah,
1: I'm just thought, like it's just weird, isn't it? Because it's like now everyone's getting the chaps. It's just like right, we 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 are, are we gearing up to having to leave our houses again.
2: Uh, I think I think that well, who knows? It might be. It might still be a long way off. It might actually be.
1: Uh, I don't know. A year, less than a year. When we have to... When when they say we have to leave our houses again, right, is it optional? <laughs> I think for a lot of things it will be now.
2: I think a lot of it's going to be people working from home if they can be. And it's a bit like... I think the Zoom thing works, right? They just go, like, do you want to come in for a meeting? Nah. Can I just do
1: this? For for meetings, yes. The, the only time it's brilliant having a meeting uh, in person is when you want to go to FOP afterwards. Mm. You, go to Here, you go to Soho, you find the place, and you have the meeting for another dream that's going to be thrown <laughs> in a bin as soon as, you, as soon as you leave their room. And then, uh, and then you go to FOP. Yeah, and, that's
2: true. Uh, you, you spend... What you don't want is you don't want a meeting at 10 and another one at half four that are,
1: like, round the corner from each other or anything? Oh, no, I like organising all my meetings. Bang, bang, bang. I, you know, oh, I'm free at Wednesday at 10. Oh, I'm free at Wednesday at 12. Oh, I'm free at Wednesday at 2. Bang, bang, bang. Then you have ramen, fop, uh, a little walk around uh, Leicester Square, maybe a a cinema by yourself, and uh, home in time for another sleepless night. Um, I'm on uh, new sleeping pills. Oh, yeah? Mm. I know you like proper ones. Well, they're sort of twice as strong as the, uh, ones I was on before.
2: For a second there, I thought you'd fallen asleep, so I was thinking they're pretty good. Um,
1: I do feel a little bit like I'm in
2: slow motion today. So is it like, does it mean that, does it have an effect like that on your day thing? I mean, I've never been able to get... The, the only times I've sort of had trouble sleeping, I've been to, like, a pharmacist and the only thing they've been able to give me... is nitol. It's not even nitol. It was like a kind of... It was one of them things that I know is like a sort of...
1: Psychosomatic.
2: Yeah. You sort, so you sort of go, but I know this is nonsense.
1: The herbal one.
2: The herbal one. Mm. I was looking at it going, I know this doesn't work. But weirdly, it did seem to work.
1: <laughs> weirdly, I mean, I know these don't work, so I took them. I was like, These aren't going to work, but
2: weirdly, I just worked. thought, I just was like hoping that somehow these herbs that are unscientific somehow might actually have something in them that might actually scientifically work. I think and they it was actually only a very short period where I had trouble sleeping. Uh,
1: I think the se- I've never been able to sleep. I think the secret is. Go to sleep when you're tired. That's it.
2: I think that's it. I think whenever I try and work through it, or it's too early, I think I stay up and then I can't sleep.
1: That's hey. like, that's like the opposite of what I said.
2: No, like if I if I, if like I'm tired and it's too early to go to bed to go to sleep, I try and sort of keep myself awake and try and watch something. And then, like, an hour or two later, when it is time to go to
1: sleep, I can't go because i just woken myself up. Oh, I see what you're saying. But, like, it's never too early for me to go to sleep. I'm never, like, oh, it's 8.45. Eight oh, I better go to bed. It's never then. It's always, like, well, I'm tired. It's midnight. It's 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning. 3 o'clock in the morning, I tend to fall asleep. I was on these sleeping pills that didn't do very much. Uh, and it was like a luggage carousel where uh, you're waiting for your luggage to come along and you see your luggage uh, and then you go to get your luggage but you miss your luggage and then you just got to wait for the luggage to come around again. And that's what sleep was like. You you can feel yourself very tired and you're almost there and you have to concentrate very hard on falling asleep and then if you miss it, you're wide awake and then you've got to wait for the cycle to sort of like complete itself again. Awful. Just terrible. I found a few things that have helped. Is everybody... But what, I saw a tweet yesterday and someone was talking about sleeping. So is everybody having difficulty sleeping in lockdown?
2: I now am not... Because I don't have a regular routine and I don't really have to get up for anything.
1: Yes, but not just you, Nat.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, but, but no one else can hear you. Well, they can, bit- but they can only hear you in the future.
1: Yeah, but I'm asking you about everyone else, because you've already said that you have absolutely no qualms in going to bed at seven o'clock in the evening.
2: Funny enough, I think the, the pills I took were called qualms or something like that. Calms? Uh, maybe it was calms.
1: Calms. Aren't they meant to stop you from getting stressed out before an exam?
2: Oh, maybe it's that. Maybe it's a similar thing. Um Well, I think that's a problem. I think I don't have a routine at the minute.
1: They stopped me from getting stressed up before an exam. But when I was taking the exam, I was completely naked. And my pens were made of sausages. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Then I realised I was dreaming. Um, So, um, yeah, but what are other people? Do you think other people are having... uh, Natalie's saying yes. Zopiclone. Zopiclone. Uh, tell me, Natalie, Zopi clone. I think the one I'm taking begins with into the Z. Does a Z? hello.
3: Hey,
2: hey guys. It it's with a Z. <laughs> I'm a- drinking some Mountain Dew and eating some Three Musketeers bars.
1: What's that, um, is it All Saints song? Uh,
2: yes, I know what you mean.
1: It's such a good song, and they do it, they do, they say Z... The alphabet runs right from A to Z. And then later on, they go, the alphabet runs right from A to Z. And they have another rhyme, and you go, that's great. That is great. I love it, because you're kind of like, they're not just completely selling out for an American market. It has artistic value to it. They're rhyming with Z and Z. One of the best rhymes in one of my songs, and... Don 't talk about my stuff that often, one of the best rhymes in one of my songs is where you think it's going to rhyme with uh Z, but it doesn't it rhymes with Z oh
2: that's nice
1: can 't remember what song it is if it' answers on a postcard i 'm so spaced out uh i don't know Natalie. you can keep writing stuff with Z's on it, but um they're upstairs next to my bed i'm not going I'm not going to stop a broadcast to so, um have a one way conversation with you, but people apparently people are having difficulty sleeping i think it 's because um, people aren 't out and about and like getting exhausted, but also there 's a lot of stress involved anyway. Have difficulty sleeping um, uh, i 've just stopped trying to go to bed normal times i 'll go to sleep about three o 'clock in the morning. What I do is I play um, uh, word games on my phone whilst watching grand designs. Just as I'm about to, just as I'm about to fall asleep, I'll switch on um, RMSI. What is it called?
2: <laughs> I know what you mean. What is that thing called?
1: Jordan yeah. Brooks's favourite thing in the world.
2: Yeah, what are they called? I know what you mean
1: ASI.
2: ASMR.
1: ASMR. Switch on one of them of uh, a thunderstorm on Jurassic Park. It's, it's three hours long. And I've told you this before, right?
2: I think you yeah. have. Isn't it from an audiobook or
1: something there? No, it's not an audiobook. It's uh, just a thunderstorm on Jurassic Park. Someone's gone to Jurassic Park with some sound equipment. <laughs> They've uh, launched themselves up in one of them high hides from the Lost World novel by Michael Crichton. Sure. And uh, they're up there in the trees, and you can hear the rain, can't you? You can hear the rain pitter pattering down in the trees, and there's thunder in the distance. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then every so often, you can hear a brachiosaur just go. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it?
3: Because
2: there is. Uh, uh, uh. Okay. <laughs>
1: That's more like a drum roll than rain, but that's the corrugated roof of the high hide for you.
2: Yeah, that's yeah, nice. I would have thought being in hearing the sounds of Jurassic Park would be kind of a bit worrying, because you know, as the as the rating suggests, it does contain some mild peril being in Jurassic Park. I don't know if I'd like...
1: It's important to remember you're not in Jurassic Park the movie, you're in Jurassic Park the place. So it's
2: before anything's gone wrong, it's the dream of... It's um, John Hammond's dream of Jurassic Park.
1: Well, is... I think you're more on sort of like a fact-finding adventure. It's... Uh, do you know, the best part of any film, any book, is the beginning. The best, the best Lord of the Rings film... It's the first twenty five minutes of the first one when they're just packing lunch. You know? <laughs> I go no, no, no,
2: that's So you yeah. be, would Jurassic Park be a better film if it just ends with like Sam Neil going oh, what do you think, Sam? And he's just like fucking brilliant.
1: On paper goes, On paper it looks like a bit of a nightmare. Um I'd probably honest, had a brilliant time. I'd probably put a few more safety restrictions up. Maybe a sign if, you know, you can tell people, you can tell people again, you can tell people three times. But if you put a sign there, then it really drills at home, a big <laughs> sign saying, don't walk through the electric fence. Yeah. Um Aside from that, I thought it was great. I like the fact that you've got different price range restaurants. Um I think it's great. I think the merchandise is a little expensive, but, you know, I suppose if you're staying in Jurassic Park in the first place... You got the money, you know. Um, there could probably be a few other things non-dinosaur related on the island. You know, TripAdvisor Monday to Monday to Monday to Thursday when you're not feeling like going to the park, but TripAdvisor. I'm I, what's that out of five? Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it a four. Oh, cheers! I thought it was really oh. good. Um, I thought it was really good. Uh, uh, and if uh, uh, Well, my name's not Alan Grant. That's the end. Just can't work these bloody seatbelts. Ah, that's him leaving. It's a call back to the beginning when he couldn't work out the seat, how the seatbelt uh,
2: It's not a good ending.
1: Do you know that... I've told you this before, everyone. The uh, seatbelt thing is is meant to be kind of like... A metaphor for the film. No. Uh, you get a male part of a seatbelt, and you get a female part of a seatbelt. Right. The female part of the seatbelt is the is the is the clasp. Oh. And the male part of the seatbelt is uh, the bit that looks like a dick. Yes. Yeah. So you stick the dick into the clasp. Yes. Um. And um, that's the man and the female part. But in Jurassic Park, um, all of the dinosaurs are female.
2: Yeah.
3: So
1: when he's on the helicopter, he's a paleontologist that just doesn't like the modern world. He d- seat belts. He's also a man. He's a man, and he doesn't like seat belts. And uh, so what he does is he gets two female seat belts, ties them together. Life finds a way. Ah,
2: I like that. Yeah. My mate, my, my it's mate it's bit. like a
1: little—it's like a little visual metaphor for the rest of the film. You've seen it, but you haven't maybe worked it out for yourself. Um, I think that I love—I like Robinson Crusoe at the beginning when he uh, is in a shipwreck. Swiss Family Robin at the beginning when they're in a shipwreck. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, let, uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth when at the beginning when they um, when they pack for dinner. You know, they were like, well, we're going to need 30 yards of rope. We're going to need some uh, boxes of salted cod. We're going to need a cask of uh, brandy and, you know, some hessian socks. A flint pickaxe for climbing. You know, there's always like this list of kind of like stuff that they need. And they're always, like, really, like, old-fashioned, archaic things. You know, a matchstick and some water for to to make a compass? Why not a compass, Grandfather? Because
3: <laughs> we're out on
1: in the wild! You know, stuff like that. And it? 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? No, not read or seen, no, that, but I imagine it's oh, very similar. I'll
2: tell you what, the, the, it's a treat, the uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Well, the but film yeah, of the, the book... One. Isn't not, he? I've not read the book. Well, Kirk Douglas? Kirk Douglas, James Mason. I oh, saw great. Go on. Just, I'm just saying, it's a hard recommend. I've seen it twice in the last year, I think, so I enjoyed yeah.
1: it very much. There's a scene at the beginning uh, where Kirk Douglas turns up with two women on his arms and then he gets on the submarine and he was just like, if I'm going to be spending the entire film in this sausage factory, uh, I need people to know that I'm all man." <laughs> the
2: shape in it it's like he sort of he looks like Popeye in it his shape is basically exactly the same as Popeye he's yeah. got a huge kind of like torso that goes down into this sort of very kind of thin waist I think he's sort of that kind of it's kind of a body type you don't really see now but I reckon it's kind of like a male ideal of that time I think he probably looks like those sort of 50s bodybuilder magazines or something so you go no one looks like that now but yeah. it's also weird that you kind of Kirk Douglas, even though he was making films up till like you know seventies, eighties, as as a kind of aging leading man, you don't really get to see what he looks like. Where he's like, God, look at him! He's like a proper masterly bloke in in the sort of late fifties, early sixties.
1: Yeah, it's impressive. Kirk Douglas there. Kirk okay, Douglas. But, yeah, like the beginning of um, Fellowship of the Ring. Is that what the first one's called? Yeah, Lord of the Rings. Mm. Mm. And Sam's like, we're, well, we're better. We're going on a quest, Sam. Well, sir, we better pack some sandwiches. And that's what they do, in it? They make the first 45 minutes of the first Lord of the Rings film... Is Sam and Frodo making sandwiches?
2: I'll be honest; I really struggled with that first Lord of the Rings film when it came
1: out. Oh, it's just them when they're making sandwiches, you know the one.
2: It's basically one. That... Well, what
1: should we have on Tuesday, sir? Uh, why not um, peanut butter and jelly? <laughs> well, we're having them on the Monday. Oh, are we? Um, well, I guess uh, ham and mustard. Certainly, sir. Certainly. Pass me the bacon foil And, you know, they, like, wrap up all of their sandwiches, don't they? Yeah, baby bells to keep us going on the journey, sir? Or oh, would it be cheese strings? Why not both? We're going on an awfully big adventure. All right, so you had a couple of spicy pepper armies to bring things up on the way. And, you know, they, they spend the first 45 minutes of the film... Packing, packing those uh, lunchboxes, don't they? Uh, one of them's got a night ride to lunchbox and the other one has got a, a, a get-along gang lunchbox because <laughs> it was such a long time ago, way back in the 80s when they went on this adventure. They set off, don't they? And uh, they're not ten minutes down the road before Sam's eating all of the sandwiches. Uh, and then they're in all sorts of trouble eating berries off the... But these are slow berries, sir. They're awfully bitter on my tongue. T- 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 tastes like eating powder. Which was uh, a, a quote from this week's Rick Stein. Well, uh, it could have been a Rick Stein from many moons ago, uh, but I saw it this week. Uh, anyway, those are the best parts of any adventure. The middle part of every adventure is always uh, an elf skateboarding down a portcullis uh, in the middle of a big fight. That's the middle part of all of these things. It's they rubbish.
2: all like a computer game.
1: Absolutely rubbish. And then there's, it never ends. <laughs> uh, but, um, but the best part of every adventure film, my favourite ever was um, Famous Five Valley of Adventure. Oh, I've talked about this. Famous Five Valley of Adventure. And they just had lots of tins of tinned ham, tinned pilchards, tinned pears, you know, and they would uh, steal from the supplies of their enemies from the back so as not to draw attention to it. And they would have midnight feasts of spam and prunes. What an adventure those five kids must have been on. I just always think that they're the best.
2: It's true. You've given me a nice, warm feeling. I, 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 I do. I think those those things do do have that kind of effect on you. But you do almost go. Oh, I quite like to be out and eat some pears in tins or something.
1: Imagine, imagine being on Jurassic Park in a high hide where it's safe. You're not with a bunch of ecologists that are messing things up. You're not with a bunch of evil in gen scientists. Yeah you're not with a chaotician it's just you and um uh marty mcfly's girlfriend and if you're in the back of his two by four by four and um she goes where's marty and you're like i killed him and you're on Jurassic park um and it's raining very heavily and there's thunder and lightning and in the very distance you can hear what might be a threat, might not be a threat, it's a dinosaur mooing or calling. Oh. And you just think well, there are problems out there, but they're they're very far away and they're for another time. At the moment we're safe, we're warm, it's raining, but we're not in the rain. Good night, Jennifer. Oh. That's when you go to sleep. That's when you go to sleep. She doesn't, obviously, because you've kidnapped her and she's absolutely terrified. But you killed
2: her boyfriend, and, she,
1: and she's on Jurassic Park, and you've killed her her time traveling boyfriend. But um sure, but, but you're all right. First time you've slept in years. It's time for a song. <laughs> <laughs> this is
2: the new one from um Well, you. You can probably guess who
0: it is. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's Fan Club on Bluebar
1: Radio. And we're back.
0: And we're back. We're
1: back. We are all social debris. Um, uh, we are b- <laughs> we're back. And do you know what? Not only are we back uh, during this show... And we're back this week. We're back all... Do you know where else we're back, Nat? No, where are we back? We're back in the fucking charts in Malta. We're number 45 in the Maltese fucking comedy charts today.
2: Yes, that's what it is. It's comedy, is it? Oh, comedy. And in
1: Ireland? And Ireland. We're fucking 76 in Ireland.
2: That's all right. That's close to home. I don't know why that should feel better than Malta. It doesn't. It does to me. I feel like, yeah... I feel like it's oh. kind
1: of home, doesn't it? Oh, oh, I know, I know. Um, so, uh, h- how else is it, Nathaniel?
2: I'm doing all right, I think. I mean, uh, um...
1: feeling, still feeling good about Brexit? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've rolled out the vaccines, Nick. I mean, it's uh, yeah, but. Right
1: Boris and are finally coming through it for you, so that's not bad. Uh, no, good for you, good for you. It's all coming out. It's all coming out. Metcalf at the moment, isn't it? Well done. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, as you know, I just kind of—I'd love to go to Malta. I'd love an invite. I guess. Um, I mean, also, I think um, uh, it's probably easier. Probably not now, actually, post Brexit. But I'm saying, there's even a chance that. You know, I could do a gig in Ireland, probably. It's not beyond out the question, is it? Someone could invite me. It's quite quite easy to get to. Monten- you going to go it's back? More of a more of a, a mission, doesn't it?
1: Are you going to go back to doing gigs?
2: Don't know. You know, I mean, it feels so weird. I feel honestly like an imposter at the minute. I feel like I wasn't I wasn't doing a lot of stand up before the pandemic, but I was always keeping my hand in and always kind of. Basically doing everything I was asked to do and then I'd sometimes have moments where I'd bookloads and do those. Um, and now I feel like I feel like I've really lost my identity in the last
1: have they year. found you? Have they just found you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> do you know what I mean? I feel like I'm I feel like sort of an imposter. I feel like I almost feel a bit like did I ever do that? It feels so kind of alien.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was sort of, like, on... You've lost me. I was on and off gigs for a long time. I took a year off for a bit, and then I started getting back into it, and I was halfway through a tour. Then the tour got extended, and then lockdown happened, and so I wasn't really doing gigs, but I was doing kind of, like, my solo stuff. Um, And so, because it's kind of, like... Uh, the, when we first when covid first came along and when lockdown first happened it wasn 't something like that was in our calendars that we were preparing for. It was just something that sort of like came along we didn 't know how long so it 's not really clear in my head exactly where I was and what I was doing i don 't know how much of a comedian I was when it started. Do you know what I mean mm. um, like in my mindset and my headset what i was what I was thinking what I was doing. Um, so it doesn't feel like it's not like i guess i mean i I wasn't like working in that West every day, and then all of a sudden i wasn't allowed to work in that way because it's such a fluid thing isn't it mm. you're never working a hundred percent of the time and it's not kind of like uh you have like a, a it's not like you clock in and clock out it's kind of like you're always sort of thinking about it,
2: yeah. I was weirdly at that point as well, where I know in January last year or December, I was talking about doing Machantleth, and I think I was sort of like, "Oh, what can I do?" And I, Henry organises it, was saying basically try and do a new show, but like I was sort of I was always sort of trying to get away, get out of doing a new show, like doing something like. Oh, maybe I'll do a mixed bill or something like that, or I'll run something. And I think he sort of said, Nah, do a new show, but don't feel the need to have an hour. So I went, All right. So my plan was to try and write 40 or 50 minutes for me. And then if I needed an extra 10 minutes, I'd have someone come on and do like a support or something.
1: That's insane.
2: <laughs> but I know that you sort of do, you really throw yourself in, don't you? And you can kind of, you know, you have very few notes on a bit of paper and you pull out an hour of it, for a, whereas to me it feels much more... I don't know, I find that terrifying.
1: Um, it's terrifying up until uh, you start and then you, and then you look at your notes and you look at the clock and you realise you've done half an hour on one note and then you're like, oh, this is... I could do three hours, you know. Mm. But, um... Uh, but you can't replicate that, you know, which I think is what that's what I enjoy the. I mean, that's what I enjoy the most. Yeah. I enjoy work in progress. And I enjoy. I enjoy the audience knowing that um, it's not a show. And I, I, think
2: I do.
1: I enjoy I not knowing it's not a show. I knowing it's not a show. Mm. and I enjoy both of us knowing that I'm trying to do a show, Mm. and there will be a show at some point, and maybe some of this will end up in the show, but for right now, for all intents and purposes, this is all disposable, and we're all there just to have fun. And when all of that pressure is taken off me, I am working at 100% of my abilities. As soon as you add a TV camera... uh, (laughs) Uh, An element of pressure to it. I, the percentage of my ability to harness what I'm capable of uh, diminishes. So I, I, I get more nervous, and when I get more nervous, I'm more panicky. Um, and I don't, I, I don't think as well off the cuff when I'm in a competitive environment. like If I was to do a panel show or something like that, I never feel like I come across particularly good on panel shows. Uh, I felt at my most relaxed when we were doing heavy entertainment because it was mine, and we just recorded until we got the episode done. So those records were really long; they were like two hours. Because the idea was we would cut it all down. I Was that my most relaxed? It wasn't time limit. Uh, there was it was a home team. People, were, I, I didn't have to prove myself. People were there just to see me, and I'm really good at, in those situations, I'm, and I really enjoy. Accomplish for those reasons, and then as soon as you get the tour, where you're wheeling out the same thing every night, and it works great 80% of the time, and then 15% of the time it's slightly difficult to get them on board at first, but then you win them over, and then 5% of the time, they're just like really tough gigs. Well, 4% of the time are really tough gigs and 1% of the time you're in Southampton and it's just, what's the fucking point in coming to Southampton? It's the last gig of the tour. We've already fucking done London. Why are we in Southampton? It's Southampton after London. And then you're in Southampton and there's five cunts on the front row that are too drunk to fucking listen and, and then ruining it for everyone else that's bought tickets. And you're just thinking... What is the fuck? I can't even do the fucking show. I've tr- attempted to start the same bit four times. I can't do it. And the security card's just watching you, and you go, get them out! Get them out! This is this is beyond the point that they're, they're not heckling. They're just too drunk. They're just chatting at fucking high volume, and and no-one's doing anything about it. This isn't my fucking job. Um... You know, don't miss that. <laughs> uh, I really, I really loved, like, I I really loved that. It, but, you know, when someone like Tommy Tiernan would do, like, um, a whole month or, like, a tour of, like, oh, I'm going to do improv every night. Hmm. I remember that was a thing. And it was just kind of like people, like, going, oh, it did, I didn't work tonight. And it was really hitting me. Because what you've done is you've taken something that's meant to be work in progress and you've made it into a show, and then all of a sudden the pressure's back, where it's like, yeah, it's improv, but people are still expecting an hour of comedy because this is the show. Whereas what I like is the fact that you go, it's work in progress, it probably won't be very good. And Mm. then it's always, I would say, with my work in progresses, the ones that I've done. I've always, I I did McCuntless one year where I did... um, eight eight work in progress shows there are an hour each, and like i said i 'd go on with a few notes and i 'd do because i was I was prepping heavy entertainment, so I needed six episodes that were all on a different subjects, we did uh, six hours and then I worked in another two for rollover material, just in case we ran out of time at any of them and I could kind of like do like a collection of stuff that we didn 't have time for or um, I think one of them was that, and then one of them was like um, an alternative subject matter. And that was great. And there was one that didn't work at all. And that was because it was the sex one that was on at seven o'clock on a Saturday. And because I was doing so many gigs that that weekend, uh, it was just filled with families. Because I think mine was one of the only shows that you can get tickets for. Because seven o'clock on a Saturday night was like you Know, uh, peak, uh, what do you call it, um, it's
2: sort of in between people going to see their late shows
1: and yeah, eating it, dinner or whatever. Yeah, it was it's, it's where all of the comedians were doing one show and they were on at seven o'clock on Saturday, and I was doing eight shows and one of them was about that time, so everyone, you know. So that's fair enough. But, like, the people that couldn't get into the shows that they wanted to go and see were like, oh, we'll go and see that then. And it was just all families that were there to see me talk about, like, anal sex. And I was just like, okay. Um, I'd, you know, so I improvised an hour on the Hairy Bikers. Uh, I didn't change the material that much. <laughs> and um, it was, do you know what I mean? It was like that's the only one that didn't work out that well. But apart from that, like all of the others were really fun and interesting and, um, and they were like surprising to me and surprising to the audience. And I guess I miss that the most out of live stuff. I do not miss. I miss the fact that, you know, I, I, I like will scramble together a bunch of notes and then go on stage with like notes in my hand. And then I will, and then I will barely reference them and then I can talk for an hour. Hmm. What, what I don't miss is I don't miss, like, the... I just find that you can do comedy, you know, if you're out there and you want to do comedy and you think there's a specific way of doing it, um, there's not. There's not a specific way of doing it. I have had people telling me, like, my whole career, that I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, and unless, unless you're just absolutely not making people laugh, uh, and as self-deprecating as I am, I mean, if I didn't, if it, if I wasn't, if I couldn't make people laugh, I wouldn't do it. And I love making people laugh. I love people making laugh. I love making people laugh on a social level, but I love it on a professional level. You know, I, I miss that loads. I always used to make people laugh in the pub, not like as a comedian, but just as a person. And, um... I just think it's a really it's a skill that I'm really uh, grateful for, and um, and if you're out there and, and so that's the only thing if you want to be a comedian and you don't make people laugh then maybe it's not for you, but uh, any other way to go about doing it it's up to you. Hmm. Um, I think
2: what we both have is safety nets. Your safety net is that um, those bits of paper that you may or may may not use, and I have I essentially need to have. A almost like written script, but when I listen back to what I say, it's never like the stuff I've written. Mm. I've, I've made my own way of telling that story. That in my head, I think I've learned, but what I've actually done is I've remembered a completely different way of
1: doing it. But you remember the points, don't you? Yeah. Is, stand up isn't verb, isn't isn't um, a written thing. It's a it's an oral thing. It's a verbal thing. So. You know, my writing voice is different from my speaking voice. Mm. I wrote a thing about Christopher Plummer and The Sound of Music this week. You know, such an important film in my life. I don't know if it was the first film I ever saw at the cinema, but I know it was one of the first that I'd ever seen at the cinema. And I know that um, uh, I've always loved it. Um and I wrote about it, and then I reread what I'd written, and it was very flouncy, and I would never say it out loud. And in actual fact, if I'd heard myself say it out loud like that, or if I'd heard someone else say it out loud like that, I'd have written them off as a ponce, right? <laughs> but um, but I, that's how I felt, and I wrote about it, and I am capable of writing like that, but when I, I don't speak like that, because. Um, uh, I'm, I guess I'm sort of I, I, I edit myself and I and I, um, you know, I don't want to be. Uh, I want to speak how I feel, and I want to write how I think, and um, and I don't know. But I think that that if I was to write my stand up down and learn it as a monologue. It would be completely different, and also it would take you a lot longer to get to punchlines. Don't you think that?
2: Yeah, I, or like I quite like the—I mean, part of what I do—I quite like the roundabout way in which I get to a punchline. But yeah, it doesn't—it doesn't—it won't be that. But I think what I need is that safety net. So I almost need to have it written to sort of prove to myself that that's what it—you know—that could be a show. If I read that out, it would take fifty minutes or an hour or whatever.
1: Absolutely. I write on my hand and I very rarely look at my hand, uh, when I'm on stage, but I know it's there. If you, you know, somebody people say, why don't you just write it on a piece of paper? And it's just like, because then you've got to get a piece of paper out of your pocket. Your hand is there. Hmm. You write it on your hand, it's there. You know, you don't searching for a piece of paper. You just glance at your hand, it's there. Um... Uh, yeah, and I think that, that I think that, that, is a, that is a safety moment. It helps me do the job that I do. And there's no one that's ever said that... There's no book that's saying that you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, that's what I need in order to do it. Um, yeah. And if you're out there and you're just kind of like, bloody... I always used to just think, fucking hell, how does Jack D remember a, a, a whole hour of material? And um, and then I did my first hour, and I was like, oh, my God, that was remarkably... Yeah. Like, um, I, like my, my first hour, I'm not saying my first hour was good. It wasn't bad, but I'm not saying... I can't remember it that well. I remember it wasn't bad, and I did a lot of poetry in there. But what I'm saying is that um, I found doing an hour so much easier than doing 15 or 20 minutes. And Me too. Uh, my memory is fucked i can't remember i can't remember you know lyrics i can't remember um words it takes me ages to get kind of like scenes learned for when i'm acting and stuff and um and so the, so one of the biggest uh, intimidating aspects of stand up was how do you remember all that stuff and you do you do
2: yeah last edinburgh i you know i 2 weeks before edinburgh started, <laughs> didn't know it and I was really worried because you start thinking, I'm sure last, every other time I've done this, it would be like, I'd have known it by now. You probably don't. And then on the day or on the, or, you know, a few days before, you just go, oh, I do know it. I'm just not, it's just something I'm using to beat myself up about. Whereas actually, when, when thrown into it, you kind of just do know it. Well, I I try and put a couple of cheats somewhere where if I need to reference something, I can, but I would never do.
1: But if you do know it, have a fucking, have a book. Have a, do you know what I mean? Write it down. Because it's not, I, comedy isn't a memory test. Comedy is, if you if if you make them laugh, then you've succeeded. And if you that's, don't, that, then you haven't.
2: That's where I was, though, this time last year, with this idea of, like, kind of my head space was in a kind of, oh, I might try and write something new and then, and see what it's like and not, not be like, oh, I'll definitely turn this into a show, but, like, do it and see if you think it's funny or worthwhile or worth developing. And uh, and now when the pandemic came along, it sort of threw that off a bit. And it was like, I guess I guess I'm abandoning those notes that I was writing in January and February last year. And now I guess it all seems like, what do audiences want? Do they want you to talk about this? Do they want you not to talk about this at all? I sort of feel like the latter that it almost would feel weird not to mention it. And I think because I was in that headspace of trying to come up with something new, I think the idea of someone like like a few people who have gone on oh, do, like doing gigs now online, doing new material or something, just feels a bit like, I don't know whether I should be trying to do something new new or whether I should be trying to do something that I was writing in January, February last year. And that's the stuff I'd probably be most interested in doing still. But it's it's now at this point where I don't know. It's sort of like Am I now taking up space? Are there so few places in stand up for people? Who knows
1: what it's gonna be like when it's all It's not your job to make room for other people.
2: No. I probably yeah. I, I guess it just doesn't feel like now I could do a gig if someone said I I mean I could do one. I could I could pull one out of old material or whatever. If I, if someone said, if I had to do 20 minutes or something, whereas, but I also I sort of feel like I've got, I was sort of in my last time I did it, I was sort of thinking about doing something entirely new. So what now I'm a
1: bit, you? I don't know. So hey, like, what do you want to do? Yeah. It sounds to me like doing an hour of old is you filling time because you've got to do a show. Mm. Right. So do something new. And also, I think that we've been in lockdown so long that you don't have to... You can mention lockdown because it's part of life now without having to do a show about lockdown. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, But I don't think anyone wants to show about lockdown. I'm really looking yeah. forward to this, to, to getting back and writing a show. I know what my show's going to be about. I'm excited about writing that show. I just... I'm not going to write it until I need to. But I, I've got it in my... The back of my head. This is the show. This is what I'm going to do, and it's going to be great. I'm really excited about it. Uh, but until that point, I'm not going to write it ready and be kind of like, "Oh, I have wrote an hour and I can't use it." I'm just going to wait until we do it, and then, and then it's yeah. that. And if, you, and if you want to write something, write it. And if you don't, don't. You know, but um, but don't feel like um, this. Uh, don't feel like you know. Oh well, what do people want to hear from me? about uh i might as well leave the room open for other people to do. that's up to them if they want to do this for their stuff
2: yeah I, I mean sure i also i i agree with you totally i i also just think at the minute it feels a bit odd doesn't it because because there isn't this sort of everything feels a bit unknown like yeah. oh, i'm sure things will come back but until they do i feel a bit and i'm yeah. sure when they, whenever i do do it again it would feel weird in a way that it hasn't felt weird since 2007 or whatever. Like, I think if I did it again now, I'd be like,
1: ooh. ah, ooh." The thing is, I haven't um, quit doing stand-up, and I haven't quit as a comedian, but what I don't feel the need to be is a pioneer. I don't feel like I need to be the first person back to doing it. It's just kind of like, you know... I just remember when they were like... um, I remember when... um, lockdown first started and i had like some tv stuff in development and they were like oh god um yeah these are great but have you got any ideas that we could do that sort of like lockdown you know uh related and i was like what, do you mean, like a sitcom based in lockdown and they were like no not really but one that kind of like you could film a social distancing and then i spent ages trying to think of you know well if you're going to do a tv show and it was like social distance, Well, then the crew would have to be socially distanced. And I started trying to think of kind of like all these... And I was like really stressing about it. It's like, Nick, it's not your responsibility to single-handedly work out how the TV industry is going to continue, you know, under social distancing and COVID. And, of course, it's not. It it wasn't. You know, you you could have pitched anything back then. Everyone was just panicking. And it's just kind of like... Um, America's got that sorted. Do you know what I mean? It's just like there's other people that have got that sorted. You don't need to... Uh, and I feel like, in terms of stand-up, I don't need to be the person that works out how to do live shows. I don't need to be the person that goes back and... Um, um, and it ..does kind of like shows in a car park and stuff like that. I think the people that have done that are brilliant, good for them. They're probably better at doing stand-up than I am. I need to, you know, I need to be in a certain mood oh. a certain night with the right candles being lit and a bubble bath and I need to be wined and dined and then I'm ready to do stand up right, but some people can just turn it on and, I, and, uh, and, and that's amazing to me, but I, I'm, not, I'm not like that so I don't feel the pressure but when we're all allowed back and everyone else is doing gigs and someone will say to me, Nick, do you want to do a gig? I'll be like, "Uh, yeah, give me a month. And I'll write it. But I'm not thinking about it till then.
2: That's good. I think I'm the same. I'm not, I I guess I can't really think about it. It's all going on in the background where I'm a bit like, what am I doing? But but I guess I'm also a bit, um, I'm not making, I'm not making those decisions till things are open again and I can do, I can actually do
1: them. Or Mm. not um, well, we could have talked about many things this week, but we talked about that. Uh, it's interesting. Who, interesting. Who knows? Who knows? Have we got any time? I would do like a couple of fan mails, and then we'll play a song, and then we'll get our guest on. Yeah. Um, uh, are you ready, Brian? Uh, by the way, R.I.P. Christopher Plummer. He made a lot of films. He was basically the uh, the go to movie shit though wasn't he he was such a horrible piece of shit in so many films uh and even half of the sound of music which (laughs) is which you know he resisted his whole life but he was fucking good in that film Uh, like he like that is his best film i think that and star trek six you think star trek six he's so good in star trek six And he's so good in The Sound of Music, and he's good in a lot of other films. I'm watching halfway through Dreamscape right now, and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a classic Christopher Plummer being a shit. He's brilliant in Dragnet. I think Dragnet is a terrible film. He's brilliant in Dragnet because he's really having fun, and he brings this kind of, like, heightened...
2: I know someone recommended Silent Partner the other day, too, Christopher Plummer Films. And that is worth watching if you want to see. I've,
1: I've got it on Blu ray. I've got it coming on Blu ray. And that and uh, the Sherlock Holmes one.
2: Oh, yeah, I've got that. That's good. What's that uh, one called? Uh, is it, is it Studying Terror? Or is it. Uh, it's the Jack uh, the Ripper one. Yeah, there's two Jack and the Ripper ones. That's why I'm trying to think of it. Studying Terror, or. Oh, I can't remember. There's two that basically come out a year apart. Right. And the Stroud's played by the same man in both of them, but they're weird. Oh.
1: Um, I've got the Christopher Plummer Chase Mason one coming uh, and uh, yeah I'm, I'm going to watch both of those and then I've done my Christopher Plummer tribute maybe we'll talk about Christopher Plummer next week yeah. anyway here,
3: Love this fan club! I'm making the plan this year I want you to be I the... What have you got? Oh
2: It's brackets Oh sorry, sorry. Uh, Not for
3: Fucking hell. Can you suggest some for me, Terry?
1: Nah, no, I'm not really into filtered animals in them. That's Nick is. Babe. Hey, Nick. I'm hey, Nats! Hey,
3: Nats! i Last week you had someone saying how fit Nick was. Nat, I felt bad. You, I felt bad you, so wanted to let you know you're okay, too. I think Nick Nolte is better than both of you, but keep on the good show work would oh, love a cunt shout out please.
2: Thanks, Chris.
1: Chris uh, Bad news for you, Nat. Um, you've got a guy that has terrible sentence structure for a start that thinks you're fitter than me. So no, no, he
2: does. I think he's saying that I'm okay. Which yeah,
1: is right. really even. I
2: think it's like a
1: backhanded compliment. It's it's kind of like the whole thing's a backhanded uh, letter, really. And then he's <laughs> telling us both that Nick Nulty I mean, it depends what era Nick Nulty. If you are like saying. That. If you're saying Three Fugitives, Nick Nolte, then absolutely fine. But if you're saying Hulk, Nick Nolte... Oh, yeah. Then please, forget about it. <laughs> forget about it, yours. Team that big fan of the show,
3: and all you guys, I will know if I want DVDs on eBay the other day and get some interesting merchandise, and I like some screenshots out. I was just wondering if maybe you knew about them all the I
1: think that's what we've had to today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks Blake. Kiss.
3: Dear Nick and Nat, how are you doing, boys? What are you doing for Valentine's Day? I remember that last year you had Ramesh on. That episode was so funny. Thanks,
1: Holly. Yeah, we've had a lot of funny episodes since.
3: <laughs> Hi Dick and Nat, I recently watched the tenth. Oh, cool and I loved it. Have you watched it? In the film, John Malkovich plays the gangster grandfather that everyone should have. Do you like him as
2: an actor? I love him. Cheers,
1: Matt. I love uh, John Malkovich. Yeah, I don't know the film, though. I don't don't know. know the film at all. What's he called? The Deadly Code? Yeah. We're both going to watch that and we'll talk about it next week.
2: <laughs> Murder by Decree is the...
1: Murder by Decree. Right, OK, we're going to play a song and then we're going to get our guest on.
2: Yeah. Well, thank- Thanks for your mail. Keep
3: it coming in.
0: Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalfs
1: Fan Club on Foo Bar Radio. And we're off. We're back. We're talking about Tank Tops with our guest Nell Frizzell. Uh, we're joined in the studio live. We're not live, uh, but we're joined by Nell Frizzell. Um, I am alive,
0: if that counts um, for anything. We're, you're alive,
1: but we <laughs> are not live. You've got a book called The Panic Years, which came out yesterday on February the 11th. It did indeed. Because yeah. that, that's the most professional thing I've ever done, Now, uh, well, I, I feel I've, like I've never meant-
0: Oh, what's that film that's all told backwards by writing on his arm? I feel like I'm in that. Uh, Memento. Memento. Memento.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, they've uh, remade that with olives. Uh, it's called <laughs> Pimento. So um, uh, well, we were just talking about tank tops. I think it's worth pointing out that a tank top in America is a
0: vest. Ah, uh, yeah. Sweater vest.
1: No, just a vest.
0: Uh, like just what, a vest. So what Bruce Willis wears in Die Hard uh, is, a, is tank a tank top. top. It's a tank top. It's grubby white tank top. Why? 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 What why? is the tank in tank top? I think uh, it's because you're like a tank, right?
2: Or is it because that's what you might wear in the military? Under or your, when um, you're um, under your, fueling
0: uh, up a train.
1: Yeah. I wonder. Well, Natalie, could you look at why, what the origins <laughs> of the name tank top is? I think the vest is... I just...
0: I think this that... T-shirt is that it's the shape of a T, is isn't yeah. it? So, tan- but tank top is not the shape of like a armored vehicle.
2: No, I think if in a, if in America a vest is a tank top, and it's it's just flipped, right? So here, where a tank top is a, yeah. a jumper without arms, whereas in America that's a vest. So then, is a vest what we'd call a vest here called a tank but
0: vestiment? Top? Is an that vest must be from vestiment? Vestiment the of- French Latin word for clothes, right? But then
1: pants must be from pantaloons, right? And so absolutely, absolutely. So Americans are right there, right?
2: Okay, so we've got we've got some sort of answer here. It is named after tank suits, one-piece bathing suits of the nineteen twenties worn in tanks Ooh. or swimming pools, like a tank. Like a that's a lovely.
0: That's lovely. They I could be I get that. they could be called pine woods. Like we could have got a really good name.
2: What's a What's, like? You know, pine
0: Pinewood Studio's got that famously big tank uh, that you oh can—they yes, yes, do all yes, the water stuff in. I once very nearly got photographed in that, and it didn't happen. Made me sad. I would have loved to. What was
2: the, what was the situation?
0: I was written—that's <laughs> for me to know. No, I'd written a piece about swimming, and it was either they were going to photograph me in a tank in Pinewood, quite expensively, or I would just jump in a pond for free and guess which one they went for how
2: would this be like
1: magazine did you power? go to
0: pinewood you got i didn't no i nearly i near i here's my anecdote i'll give it to you again because it's absolutely fiery i nearly went to pinewood actually <laughs> pinewood. i did cycle past pinewood once when i decided to cycle from london to oxford maybe one of the two yeah i've cycled I- past pinewood but you said you they gave you the choice between no 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 Pinewoods i think the editor oh. was the the picture editor was given the choice and they looked at their spreadsheet and they thought we can throw this woman in a puddle fucker oh <laughs> my mate oh. Hurley
2: had his wedding at pinewood studios wow that's quite
0: nice my friend Sander had his wedding at the bodleian library i found out this week which is very cool it's the library with all the books in the world feel free to use this as a link to talk about my book well, but to say open. your
2: book, so your book has been about.
0: I'm going to hand deliver a copy best. to the. I'm going to hand deliver a copy to the Bodleian Library, whether they want it or not.
1: What is the Bodleian Library?
0: It's in Oxford. Basically, most of like if you were a rat in Oxford, it's very problematic because a lot of under the centre of town is just a giant library full of every printed book, I think, and maybe newspaper, although they probably digitise that now. So it's quite fun. And you can go in and, like, unspool these giant racks of, like, 17th-century vellum manuscripts about those,
2: Those those racks are quite good fun. Those yeah. are the video library for, for, um. for um, football um, that I don't know anything about. And um, I used to look after... So I'd have people who'd be making little films of little football compilations, and they would call down and say, we need the UEFA Cup final... 1997, 1998, and I'd go to these video racks and I'd turn <laughs> turn the wheel. And I'd get the thing from and I'd bring it up to them, and they would say, "This is the Champions League final, not the UEFA Cup <laughs> final." And I'd have to say things like, oh, what's the difference?"
0: Yeah, come on, guys. Come Can on. I tell you my stacks story? I used to work at the Women's Library in Whitechapel. That was my oh, yeah, first yeah. job when I moved to London, and I went down to the stacks one day with the like the um collections person and she there were lots of there were books on one side and then there were artifacts on the other side and one of the artifacts she got down for me was a jug of Victorian wooden and metal sex toys that they'd found in a brothel in Whitechapel when it closed jug? a jug <laughs> the original enamel jug full of like paddles and um like scratchy things my uh, my vocabulary on these is shaky
3: sure. but um, I really-
0: Spiky. Like... And, and then obviously some, when it had closed, the brothel had closed in sort of the 20s or 30s, someone had said, actually, we should keep this because this tells a lot of the social history of women's lives. Mm. And then I held a teapot, the WSPU, Women's Soci- Social and Political Union, the suffragette teapot. I had a great time. What was that, it.
1: a teapot full of butt plugs?
0: Yeah, yeah. The, up each of the pankhursts and then put in a pot for, to stew for all the others. I, I
2: like uh, the idea that there's some sort of sex toy that's called a scratchy bit. There's
0: something like, crock again, a scratchy bit. <laughs> oh, my, my husband, he loves the scratchy bit. <laughs> what is, is a that? scratchy bit? It's a- it looked. It honestly looked like something you would tenderise meat with, but I think you'd oh. tenderise meat it like, with
1: it. Is it for it scratching your back? Because that can be kind of like... Sexy. Well, not just sexy; it's one of the best feelings in the world, isn't it? I think it looks
2: sexy. It's like it's like when, when I get my I get my hair cut by an eighty something year old man, and I didn't dare go back in the period that I was allowed to get my hair cutting. So I'm sort of frightened. These, you know, I, I don't know. You don't know when someone's that age now whether they've, they've yeah. come through it.
1: You so think I'm what?
2: afraid to go back because of the COVID in the in the um, mm. in between time. Yes,
1: but what are you saying?
2: I'm worried he's dying. The
1: way he touched your head. Yeah,
2: yeah. Because even though he's an eight-year-old
0: man, I found it very...
1: He well, knows he... what he's doing. He's 80. Things
0: he knows that, knows Here are some things, that, here's some things that I would argue are physically akin to sex, and I'm talking like mediocre sex that I've experienced recently. Scratching a mosquito bite. Absolute heaven. Love it. Could do it all year.
1: I wouldn't say oh, it's yeah. mediocre sex. I'd say that's right up there with the That's best.
0: right up there with the best. Um, well, I've got pink, expert, and sometimes if I scratch
2: that with a comb... I'm like, oh, I, I mean, it's a terrible thing to do. It doesn't help it. Picking,
0: it oh. The picking and eating of a blister, which I don't do anymore, but I've watched my son, who's three, discover it, and he's like, holy moly, you've just got free snacks on your body. This is incredible. He says, uh, oh, come along.
1: I've never picked and eaten a blister.
0: Have you not?
1: I th- oh, no. so it's just one of those things that I'm... How many people have you earned this past now? Well, might just you be you and
2: Natalie, no, and so. I can see how that was. I, I think I wouldn't be that disgusted by it. I mean, I'd I do it now, but yeah. I can
3: understand it. I had a friend don't at like...
1: university. I had a friend at university that had a Tetley t-shirt, and it was it had the gaffer on. It was very faded. It was long. It was like a muumu. Mm. And he was, and he was very. He was a clean freak. He thought he was better than everyone else. He talked down to us all the time. Uh, and he'd walk in, he wear, wear very short boxer shorts that were invisible underneath his moo-moo and some slip-on slippers, uh, which had sort of like Homer Simpson having a beer on them.
0: Was it and, the gaffer?
1: No, it wasn't. <laughs> he was very, uh, he was rake thin and he would come in and he would hover in the doorway and uh he would say you know when uh you have a boil on your back and it bursts in the night and uh you wake up and your t-shirt is completely stuck to your back and there's a big yellow stain and we'd all be like oh, no really? joe no and you go yeah it <laughs> leaves the room um so that's, that's like one of those moments, right?
0: Can I slightly up the vibe by saying I went to a party once wearing one of those giant Yorkshire tea, the bags that all the tea bags come in. It was so big <laughs> that I wore it as a dress. and it actually I fit, think
2: that would be
1: quite chic.
0: It was quite chic. I can't remember what the theme of the party was, but I remember thinking I have nailed this shut.
1: Did it, my... fit, did it fit you to a tea?
0: Oh, hey good man. man how long has that been stewing <laughs> oh my god oh oh nathaniel you're no
1: longer welcome on this. <laughs> um, it's all right like
2: this, but this is got
1: you. absolute classic bants going on here it's brilliant um Right, OK, so picking and eating blisters, that's up there with... Uh, I would say that's up there...
0: With a Might wank. Just,
1: no, not... Yeah, with a sad wank uh, on, on a rainy day at
0: a bus stop. The only way I do it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> OK, what else is... I would say a good... Having your back scratched and having your head yeah. massaged.
2: Well, uh, I so with... having a head massaged. As I say, Angelo, who's the uh, Greek Cypriot man, is very nice. The other thing I like about it is he gives me a sweet... When I've had my
0: haircut, give me a boiled sweet. I've had this conversation I think with you Nat before because I used they. to get I used to get my hair cut by a like fifty year old Iraqi guy, and at the end it was like a, ma- a man's barber, but I had such short hair that I was like, what? I'm going to pay twelve pounds for a haircut, and at the end he would give me a single white paper tissue, like an That's- like a thing, and I. Never knew what to do with it. I had, to, <laughs> I, I, had n- to sort of... I just didn't know what it was for. Like, yeah, the, the tipping, the tipping thing was complicated enough, and then the tissue. I was like, oh, sh- like, what do I? Do I put more money? Like, is this for the check? Like, what do I do? So I would just fold it up and put it in my pocket. In yeah, well,
1: it's, it's for it's for if you were a man, it would be to clean up those uh, head massages.
0: <laughs> Oh, oh, I, I see. <laughs> I see. When you've unpicked your pocket and then you can just slip right through with the wet mm-hmm. wipe. That is I mean, great. These are the I secrets of, of, of a
2: man's world that, that no one really ever let me into.
0: <laughs> do you know what happened? The best day ever at that hairdresser's was when <laughs> was, I went to my lunch break and a man next to me was having his head polished. A bald man who'd had his head like wet shaved and then with a tea towel, honestly, like you do on a bowling ball, his head <laughs> polished like that. It was so great. And I just watched a gog. Of course. I mean, that's what they should put on at the cinema, right? Yeah. If that was a film. If there was I'd a film of men having that. their heads polished and women putting their makeup on, we would flock to them. Oh, it right.
1: should be uh, George Lucas would have produced it. What was that film that he made? A Curious Q- Q- Marty. What was that film?
2: Mackey.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know the films that George Lucas produced of just stuff in slow motion? I don't, know. I don't know. You know, he made three of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Star
2: Wars.
3: Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's
1: just stuff happening in slow motion. Uh. It's like yeah, it's yeah. like um, RSMI ASMR only visual. <laughs> and I think the idea is it meant to take mushrooms. <laughs> it's
0: like IBM. It in the <laughs> it's the. I, I feel like
1: this. You know what the films are? He didn't direct them. He like, him and Francis Ford Coppola produced them. They I think I like do know. The Grand Canyon. And you're flying over the Grand Canyon. Yeah, I do know. What are they? I know what you mean. Yes. They've got weird. They're really good. I bought immersive, all of them.
2: immersive. Immersive I was, I was
1: round a friend's house and they were on in the background of the T V I thought they looked great and I bought them and I haven't watched them yet and that was twenty years ago. But um so they're they're not like urgent.
2: I feel like we've we've gone even more than usual. We have gone off topic. Sorry. Now,
0: so your book. Yeah.
1: The Panic Years.
0: Yeah. In
1: uh, five words. Tell us what it's about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> A memoir of My Panic.
1: Oh, there you go. That's not bad. Uh, t- tell us about your book.
0: Well, I wrote it because when I was about 28... I had a sort of massive explosion in my life where I came out of a six-year relationship and I got made redundant and I moved back in with my mum and simultaneously all of my friends were like getting married or getting promoted or changing jobs or moving country or having like seismic occurrences in their life. I remember thinking, this is way more serious than puberty, but we don't have any name for it. No one told me it was coming. And I also didn't know why it was happening, but it seemed to be happening to everyone around me. All of my peers were in a state of flux. And so I kind of had this niggling idea and I knew there was something there, but I was too in the midst of it to really do anything with it. And then quick fast forward to when I was 32, no, thirty, yeah, 32, I got pregnant and I suddenly realized that the thing that had really hit home at the beginning of what I've classified as the panic years, was this sort of haunting realisation that your fertility is finite, particularly if you're conditioned as a woman to think of your fertility as fleeting, and that you reach a stage in your life where you think, well, if I'm ever going to have a baby, I sort of need to get my life in gear. And that is a really sort of troubling, unfair thing because cisgendered men are never faced with that conundrum and they're not conditioned to think of their fertility in the same way as women and they don't have a kind of panic in fact they're sort of encouraged to live as happy 16 year olds for as long as they possibly humanly can and that lays the kind of burden of the decision whether or not you have children entirely in the laps and gussets of women or people with uteruses and I found that very unfair so I when I sort of saw Someone said this lovely thing that when you're at the bottom of a very tall building, you can't see the building above you. You don't even realise it's there. But as you move away, it rises up behind you like a rocket and you realise it was looming over you the whole time. And so I think as I moved through my late 20s and early 30s, the prospect of motherhood and fertility suddenly roared up behind me and I saw it in the rear view mirror and thought, oh, that's what it was all about. And the fact that we don't have a term for it, means that we can't really prepare people for it you know like we have things like puberty and adolescence or the menopause and midlife crisis and <laughs> syndrome and all those things but no yeah. one sort of says to you oh like you might be in you might be in the panic years or like this might just be your flux you're just sort of everyone you have to explain in detail to everyone all the ways that your life has gone sort of technicolor and either they fear or pity you and there's not really a sense of empathy. So I, I've written a memoir of that time from 28 to 33 to sort of say, look, this is what happened to me. I think it deserves a name. What the hell is it? How can we make it better? Hmm. And that is the book.
1: Because I think it's because uh, we we probably need to reclassify what what it is to be people now. Because mm-hmm. we were all meant to have kids by the time we mm-hmm. were 17 and mm-hmm. dead. By the time we're thirty-three, and now we're all a lot older, and people put stuff off. And you know, teenagers are less than a hundred years old, and it's kind of when yeah, were the they're f- a lot
0: less. They're like they're 50s. like fi- the
1: fifties, yeah. weren't they? Like seventy, <laughs> no, but like in yeah. the seventies, they were invented in, yeah. in the fifties, yeah. weren't
0: they? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I know what you mean. So it's kind of like so that was like a thing. Um, and and it's kind of like te- oh if you're a teenager and then you become an adult and then you're an adult for 70 years with no change yeah. and then you're old yeah and there's no you no, you're, of you're way absolutely of right this up.
0: this whole phenomenon i'm talking about is really new because it's really only been ushered in by sort of widespread access to contraception and abortion and women's entry into the workplace and by women i mean middle class women cuz guess what working class women have been working for fucking ever. So um, it's only really in the last two or three generations that people like me have had to decide whether or not to have children and they've had to dictate their lives in order to either have them or not have them. Um, So like I said in the book, panicking is itself a massive privilege. Obviously, I'm very privileged to live in a country where I can choose whether or not to have a child. If I don't have a child, I then have a choice about other things that I do in my life if I was you know if I'd been born in under different circumstances I wouldn't have the panic in the same way but I would still be hamstrung by some of the same problems and same issues and I think that you know I was sort of glib about the way men are expected to act like teenagers for as long as they humanly can but I think the invention of the teenager was sort of vague enough that you could say to people like oh you know He's, like, it basically became more socially acceptable in my 30s to talk about your trainers and collection of films and the way you like your sandwiches than to talk about an actual child that you might want or have growing in your body. And I thought that's... That's not right. That's not okay. I think you're very much on the wrong show, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I've come into I've come into the very heart of the matter. I thought.
2: No, I think you have. I've been thinking a lot. I think I'm kind of, especially in lockdown. I found myself having this real existential crisis about just being this kind of. I'm 41, and I'm mm-hmm. and I'm living my 41st year in lockdown, where I get to think nothing, again, sort of privilege just not be thinking about myself for a year. Mm. And I find it kind of, I find my life totally pathetic. And while I was feeling sorry for myself and being, you know, single in a pandemic and going, oh, that's a whole other year of my life gone. And then when I come out of it, I'm going to be 42 or 43. I mean, it's such an adult age. And yet I saw something the other day and uh, um, someone I follow tweeted and she put a thing on saying, Oh, for me, as someone who was, she herself was single, she sort of mentioned, I've lost 12 eggs. Yeah. And you think, oh, yeah, it's even that. I don't think of, even in my terms of feeling sorry for myself, I still don't have that kind of, even though I can think of it and go, God, I'll be this sort of almost like early to mid-40s kind of man-child guy floating about, I still don't have it as bad as that. And I was feeling sort of sorry for myself and going, oh, actually, I'm still kind of lucky because I can still probably get away with it. But I do feel like I need to, like, almost, you do, like, I think we do have this sort of weird. We're not, I don't think we're necessarily encouraged to be childlike for longer.
0: No, you're but just forgiven. Option, it? You're
2: it's right, not encouraged. Total.
0: You're forgiven for being it in a way that I, I just felt such a pressure from, you know, lots of, really well-meaning, kind people who would ask me over and over again what I was doing with my life. And there's a subtext there, which is, are you going to have a baby? And sometimes the subtext just becomes the full-blown question in itself. But I'm sorry if you're like that, Nat. But you're right that there is a viscerality, like the literal egg counter of what, like... I can't describe to you what it is like to be having that sort of existential panic about like, how long have I got left? And will I ever meet someone in time? And do I even really want to have kids? And then bingo, axe wound, bleeding out of your ass and eggs fallen out of your body. There's another one gone. Holy shit. Like how many more of these have I got? No. And my mum got the menopause at 40. So if I were you, like I might've run out by now of eggs. And like, that's quite a tricky thing to... It's quite a tricky thing to hold without going a bit nuts, and I think I did go a bit nuts. I think I was, you know, in my dating years, from like twenty-eight to thirty-one, I was like this very odd conundrum for men, in that I was had a raging libido and like really quite aggressive uh, sexual appetite and career ambition, and simultaneously was really worried that I was going to run out of time to have a baby. So you had the prospect of someone that was like, right, let's run up a mountain, split a log, have loads of sex, let's smoke loads, drink loads, and then you better be ready to have a baby with me within a year, which is quite a lot to give to someone. But it wouldn't be much if men were conditioned to think about their own fertility as finite and fleeting, because your likelihood of having a, a conceiving and having a healthy full-time pregnancy after 35 does decrease as a man, just not at the same rate as a woman.
2: But again, it's not something that's really talked about, is it? That is like male fertility is something that also mm.
3: knows.
2: I mean, just because we can, we're always just, we're going, didn't Des O'Connor have a baby
1: when
0: he I was It's always bloody Des O'Connor and Mick Jagger, Mick Jagger two Jagger men who I don't, I don't know if I'd choose as my dads if, <laughs> I, if I had the option.
1: And to be fair, Charlie Chaplin. I was here. There you go. Was he an old dad? He was like 90, wasn't he?
3: Whereas
0: on our side, we get like, there are brilliant people. Joe Brand has written really amazingly about being an older mum. And there are definitely definitely massive benefits to being an older parent. I think it's just the idea that one of you is panicking that they're going to run out of time and the other one is resisting the commitment. That's unfair.
2: Well, I, you know, my parents are old. Like, I'm, um, I'm 41. Oh yeah. Uh, my mum's 84. Yeah. So she would have had me when she was 43. Um, so, so I guess also maybe that's in my head as well. Like, you just, but I mean, there's no real excuse for it. And, and I, I also think you say there's like, there, it's not like I have no awareness of no, women. of course not it's not like it's not like we're totally alien to the concept.
0: No, and it's thank street. god for thank god for like thank god for men like you who are allies in that thank and you. who are no it's true and like <laughs> I knew you through all of that period and you were always really sort of thoughtful and sensitive and not like not really nosy but also not kind of grossed out when I did go into it. And I think sometimes it's you know like when you're in the shit you just want to have a common shared vocabulary to describe the flavour, texture and size of the shit and that's all I really want you know, that's what the book is hopefully doing is giving mm. people a bit of a common vocabulary and understanding of what quite a lot of people around them will be feeling
2: Yeah, well I think, well I did, I, I will have known you for a lot of the period that this book is and I, I have to say that I've only read the introduction a
0: minute, quite, Best bit, best the, bloody oh. bit
2: <laughs> Well you <laughs> said that, you said just read the introduction which <laughs> makes me think We'll just tear the rest of the book
0: out. I can say that because, as a journalist, I've had to interview a lot of people about a lot of things, and it, it's not much time to consume it all. You know, you can't you can't keep up on someone's entire career before you chat to them. It's impossible.
2: I will though. It's I crazy. will.
0: I'll get stuck into this. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty good at doing all of that, doing the reading the
1: and the, good. And the mm. research. I thought and, so. Um, and then I sort of like just cut into the stuff that the show's about, which is, like, favourite film. and Let's what, do it. What music are you into? Uh, but Nat is pretty slack when it comes to reading up on people. <laughs> um, which is why I go very quiet during the interview
0: sections and let Nat do most of the heavy lifting, because I like to see him squirm. Um, Nat, can I just go back to your thing about your parents? Uh, yeah. My mum was 34 when she had me, and I had a baby at 32, and I think there's definitely a... Your, that is on your horizon, even subconsciously. Yeah, about like when the babies come along, and like my mum had my sister at twenty four, so I think for my sister she probably had this panic at a different stage. Um, But But generationally,
2: that changes as well, right? Because like that kind of like the idea of someone at twenty four having a baby would feel like that feels crazy.
0: Yeah, Jess Phillips is you know the MP Jess Phillips. She's really interesting about this because she had her children in her early twenties and has now had. is having a really illustrious political career in her forties, just as all of her friends are kind of locked down into early parenthood. And I think if, yeah, if you, if we want to liberate women to have sensational careers and the possibility of children too, we have to slightly change the this, this sort of panic about young women getting pregnant because maybe yeah. young women getting pregnant is good and fine. I wasn't yes. ready at 24, although I was bloody well trying to get people to impregnate me at 24. Um, I was probably not I was probably lucky that I waited until i did
1: uh, this, this, from from my from my point of view um I want to be a dad, but mm. i'm scared, and i'm not sure
0: quite right because it's absolutely uh, fucking terrifying and i'm not sure when I want to do it. part of
1: me thinks that if i'd have had kids when I was twenty that you know i'm forty now there'd be twenty year olds mm-hmm. and I would I could go back to having the life that I've got right now, thereabouts, yeah. and have grown-up children if I'd have done it twenty years ago. But I was scared, and yeah. now it's going to be up until when I'm sixty. What, th- were you, what? were you scared of? Do you know? Um, I was scared that it wasn't the right time. I was scared that I didn't have enough money. That um, uh, I didn't ever start making any money in this in this career until I was. Um, I had lots of jobs that I hated. And then um, uh, I know that um, my dad worked and my and my mum, they worked uh, doing, I think my mum liked her job though, but my dad did a job that he wasn't really recognised for. He's a very creative man right. and he did a job which is he was a civil servant and he did it to make the money and then all of his sort of like artistic things was sort of secondary. So you were worried about leasing? Well, yeah, and I was sort of artistic, and, um, and then by the time I started making a career out of that, I was 30 or 29, and then I hadn't made enough money to think that I could ever support a family. And it's weird, because I know that when you have a family, you find a way to make it work.
0: But Well, if you're, you know, that's if you're lucky. You know, I think the, having done I think the truth is that there has to be a, you know, we have a welfare state because it is sometimes impossible to juggle all of that. And that is why people like us pay our taxes so that people who are less fortunate can, you know, cope with something as sort of an earthquake through their life and career, like having a child. But the, being, the financial imperative is like massive. My partner, who was really reluctant to have children and is like is dead set against the idea of having another one at the moment, a lot of that is is I'm sure informed by the fact that he grew up without much money and his you know it was not a struggle but it was sort of dicey financially um, and he worried that he wouldn't be able to provide and I think that's completely legitimate because I had to show him I had to actually show him my bank statements when I wanted to take my coil out to prove that I could pay the rent for a couple of months um, and yeah all, things about like housing and your You know, a word he used a lot was security. I wasn't ever really sure what that meant because I felt very secure in our relationship. But I think he meant security sort of in terms of his career. Was this going to ban his opportunity to do work that he loved? Because that was going to last for another 30, 40 years. And, you know, having a child, like you say, after 20 years, they sort of exit your life to a large extent, I think. And so then if you are in an unhappy job or an unhappy relationship, there's, you know, that can be devastating.
2: Mm. You don't yeah, I mean you <laughs> moved out of London, so I guess whether that was because you wanted to, or whether you would you have chosen to stay in London if you could, or was that something else that you kinda go, well this will be a bit of a sacrifice. I'll change this and I'll
0: It's really weird. Shall I tell you a weird thing about leaving London? Is that right now I'm looking out of my window and I can see the street that I grew up on. <laughs> Can I've I just, moved. Mm. Where in London did you live and where did you move? I lived in Clapton. I lived right by the River Lee in Clapton for ten years. And I lived in London Fields before that. But I was born in London, and then we moved to Oxford when I was about four. And then yeah, so I, I grew up in Oxford. Moved around. Went to London for a large chunk of time and then had a kid and had this sort of dilemma about where do we live? And it was weird, like the scales fell from my eyes and I thought, oh, we could could actually just move to Oxford. And so now I'm looking at the street I grew up on. And so like a weird sort of recalcitrant homing pigeon, I have almost completely repeated quite major hallmarks of my own childhood. Had a baby at roughly the same time. I'm in Oxford. I... My partner's a teacher. My mum was a teacher. Like, there's lots of similarities. Um, but also, with the added bonus that I walked past the bus stop that, like, I got fingered up against when I was 15 with, while pushing a buggy. That's nice.
1: That's
0: oh, you're a nice. barber. <laughs> How? No. Even I am not going to sink that, though. Oh, you know I mean. Well, you got a tissue out of it. <clears throat> um. LAUGHTER Oh, barber. What did okay. you think I said? Father, which was a okay, worse. Why words. would I say okay, that? That's much better. Why
3: would I say
1: mm. that?
0: Well, why are you father? Oh, thanks for coming on the show. Who uh, <laughs> uh, do you think uh, I took no, that very Hazel. well? She got fingered by her dad. Oh, yes. If um, <laughs> for... you had said that, and that was my response, to just sit in stunned silence and make a joke out of it, I think that's pretty good going. you think that, in that in yeah, but if... On
1: your radio if, show. If... If we'd have just moved on, and then forever, you would have just thought that. I you'd know that's on my what show, I'd about. And I have said that you got no. to think
0: about. Hmm. I have a very grubby sense of humour, so I think if you'd caught me a couple of years ago, I would have been like, "Ha!" <laughs> now I think, God, man, it does. It does. Where's it? your it, sense of decorum? It,
2: in the time before that, so it, it went before, essentially in the in the prequel to the book you haven't written yet. Were you always? Was it always in your head that I do want to have a baby or did it take you by surprise?
0: Bloody great question because I think I was incredibly maternal as a child. <clears throat> I was a sort of child who would march up to people at like a barn dance and physically take their baby off them and like hold it. Because I loved babies so much. I loved babies in the way that people love remote control cars. I was just like, oh, God, I love them. And then... At 18 or 19, when I broke up with my first ever boyfriend, I was really broody. I think that's largely to do with like the loss of of love makes you sort of want unconditional love. You know, I think that's fairly obvious. And then throughout my 20s, I had this sort of spider sense that wanting a baby made me fairly sexually unattractive to a lot of people. So I kept it very quiet to the point where I think even I started to doubt whether I did. You know, I'd say to people, I mean, I don't know, like maybe I'm not sure, you know, environmentally, it's not great. And in terms of my career, I'm not sure whether I'd be ready and I haven't met the right person. So I don't know, maybe I want to have a baby, maybe maybe I don't. And then it was only probably around my 29th, 30th sort of time. I was going to say birthdays, but it didn't happen at my party. But um, when I was about 30 or turning 30 and I was in therapy, I finally dared to say out loud, I think I want a baby. And it was terrifying. It's so frightening to admit what you want. Because to admit that you want something that much and it's that important to you, opens you up to the catastrophic possibility that you might not get it. And you will be very, very sad. And if you don't admit that you really want something, then you don't ever have to really admit to being sad that you didn't get it. So I probably always wanted a baby. I wasn't really that clever about what having a baby would look like. But for some for a little while I shied away from that because it seemed like it might not happen and I couldn't bear the disappointment. Mm. And then I had a baby and it was in a lot of ways not how not what I'd hoped for. And harder and stranger and I was not like the mother I thought I'd always be. I thought I'd be this, like, really creative, really thoughtful, kind, generous mum. And I spend a lot of time feeling angrier than I have ever felt in my life. Maternal fury, maternal rage is... It's nuclear. It is bizarre. At your child or on your child's behalf? Both. He, like, he makes me feel... He will do things that, like sear into my body and brain with like complete rage like today I made him get off a log because I had to come back and do some work and he was so angry that he like clawed at my face and kicked me in the stomach and I that physically I can like I can fucking handle a three-year-old but the idea that someone that you love will like physically attack you for doing something completely reasonable a one-off occasion you can handle when it happens almost every day. I think it grinds you down. And I just, f- and or, or there is this sort of theory that because children aren't particularly articulate and they struggle to express and communicate their feelings, they evoke those feelings in you. So he will do, like, he's really, really angry that I'm making him get off a log. How can he communicate how angry he is? He makes me really angry and then I understand and I'll sort of feel sorry for him and we can sort of repair. So there's, like, two things. Either he's a total cunt or he's trying to let me know that I'm being a total cunt. Who knows?
2: And he doesn't understand the consequences of it. Yeah,
0: yeah. And he is so secure in my adoration and affection for him that he can have you just seen a baby on the floor, Nick?
1: <laughs> no, I can hear someone in my flat and I think that's impossible.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. It's my child. I've sent him to stay with you. <laughs> me in the <laughs> I-, I thought he could have a little lockdown sabbatical with a with a man in his forties. I thought that'd be nice. I've got a- I've
1: got a collection of bubble heads that he can play with.
0: Hey, No, <laughs> he- you would never let him play with them, come on.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> most of them are still in their boxes um <laughs> carry on sorry i was i was scared for my safety it's fine
2: um uh, what was i gonna say in fact you've you have finished your point but um yeah the, i remember at that time when when because i guess i knew you for for some of the period of when your book is mm-hmm. is set in but i i think almost you would too apologetic, almost. And I, I guess that's perhaps another thing that women have, that I remember you saying something, and I mean, I probably shouldn't say this, it almost no, 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 makes no. you look like in the back. But I remember you saying something like, saying to me something like, this is probably why women of about 30 seem mad. And I remember going, that seems unfair. <laughs> but almost like that seems like an awful thing to say. But, you, but yeah. I remember that was your kind of, you, you sort of had that attitude to it. It was kind of like, yeah. this is why, this is what's... But I don't know if that is necessarily my... I guess you're never talking about others' experience anyway, are you? You're talking about... No, yourself.
0: I mean, it is <clears throat> It is a memoir and it does go... Well, I thought you were mad. Oh, right. The, the thing about being mad, I think I was really wrestling with that because I think what I was trying to say was we're being made to feel like we're mad for what are actually completely rational feelings
3: Mm.
0: to worry, to wonder and worry about whether your fertility is going to run out before you have made the decision is a completely rational thing to worry about. But you are sort of treated like you're being semi-hysterical. If you say, oh my God, I'm single and 30. Am I ever going to have a baby? People are like, come on, love. It's not like the 30s. You don't have to, you know, like you've got a lot more to your, there's a lot more to living than that. Um, but I think maybe I, yeah, the being sort of overly apologetic or self-deprecating or self-critical, like I didn't make this easy for myself. You know, I definitely, there are people who, there are people who know for absolute certain that they never want to have children and there are people who know for absolute certain that they do want children and they carry that very lightly throughout mm. their life and it is you know they are happy and content and they probably don't panic and sweat it out at weddings and birthday parties and baby showers and all those things i have probably overthought this to an extent but that is you know that's sort of your job isn't it as a writer to like to overthink and then express what's happening around you
2: in the way that our behavior when people these kind of behaviorists look at it and think oh well this the reason we do that is entirely based on some sort of prehistoric kind of you know we all we all do you think a lot of it might actually be there's actually biology that makes you feel this way as much as it's your own kind of outside influence or what you're what you're thinking about yourself do you think it is that you know on some level that your body is saying,
0: Come yeah. on, hurry up. I think you can only stare into a bloody gusset so many times before you start to think, actually, how many of these have I got left? And there is that does for me anyway, it kicked into gear. Mm. Um I do also wonder, and it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on this, that I I have never known i I I've never known a force stronger than the libido of a thirty year old woman. Like, like women in their early thirties are the horniest people alive. And I do sometimes wonder if that's because there's a little bit of you that thinks, right. My fertility isn't going to last forever. If I'm going to do this, I, you know, I want to do this now. And I'm not an evolutionary (coughs) scientist and I'm not a biological determinist. (laughs) Like that is just a thought that I had when I was, I mean, literally throwing myself groin first at people thinking, Why am I like, where Where's this come from? Why Mm. am I so horny all the time? In a way that, like, is jokingly talked about teenage boys, but no one really jokes about horny women in their 30s, but they are as horny. I
1: don't think that, I think that when we're born, um, I don't think that when we're born, we learn 100% of all of the stuff we know. We're We're born with the instincts of being a human. Um and I think that we fight against those instincts to some degree mm. as people, you know. Um and uh I think I don't know, I think if we really we're animals, aren't we, with clothes. Yeah. And um and I think that if it was kind of if there wasn't the biological thing of uh of uh, women having menopause on the horizon and this ticking clock like there is for men. Men men kind of like can have found a convenient way of putting off their biology. We're all we all live into our nineties, uh eighties, seventies, you know, we all we our lives are so long now, in a way, you know, as we said earlier, in a way that they were never really designed to be. It's all a lot of time filling. Mm. So for women it's just kind of like I don't know. Biologically, um, your eggs ran out towards the end of your life, and now it's slap bang in the middle. And there's yes. so much more to achieve in your life after you've had the kids. You know,
0: yeah. so that's Sarah Pascoe's book "Animal" is so interesting about that—about how our biology cannot possibly have caught up with our politics or our, you know, ideology or our civilization we can't like isn't that's not how evolution works so we are now in a position that our brain and bodies just really struggles to calculate like you can you can have sex and not get pregnant and our bodies are still a bit confused about that because that you know that's only been quite a recent thing or yet like you say you can live into your 80s and that's really quite recent in terms of human evolution so um yeah a lot a lot of this is probably to do with that tricky um, conflict between a biological instinct that we struggle to understand and a sort of a th- psychological principle that we struggle to define and we're caught somewhere in between.
2: I sometimes wonder if it's like helpful as well. Like it makes, like, a, as I'm saying, I'm sitting here going, oh God, I'm 41. I, I probably will be 42 when things go a bit more back to normal i've missed a year and then you think would it be more helpful if it was very in that like almost was it was it better in the olden days where <laughs> someone was basically telling you oh yeah you've got to start mm-hmm. you know when, when everything felt a bit more there was a bit more pressure i mean i guess i guess i'm talking about men again aren't i know but it's more like And i'll
0: tell you what would be helpful in for me personally would be side effect free hormone-free male contraception that was like that worked you know I know we've got condoms and we've got vasectomies but they're not really they're not quite good uh, and they're not quite up to the job I think if men could be in control of their reproductive ability and choices from the moment they want to be sexually active that would have a phenomenal effect on the way we think about all of this stuff Mm. and you know like what I what happened to what happened to vasectomies? Why do we not talk about them? Like if you're a man who's absolutely sure you don't want to have a baby, why don't you just yeah. get a vasectomy and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. And if you're a man who's not sure if you want to have children, then why, why is the onus not on you to alter either your body or your behavior in order for that not to happen? Why is, is there,
1: it? is there something mm. in that? Um, I mean, how did you find out about, uh, birth control and the coil for instance you know yeah well is that a thing that's passed down to you because i think in terms of vasectomies it's kind of like this thing that i don't 100 percent know how it works it's kind of like this mythological thing (laughs) that that maybe three percent of people that i know have gone for and it's also a punchline right It
2: feels almost like a joke or a kind of
0: really 80s like it feels like a thing that it feels like something that gets discussed in like an early Woody Allen film but we don't like we don't really talk it's like
1: a we in a car insurance advert with General Zod in it you know it's kind of like it's it, it's, it's like a thing that there's a lot of it, it's not ever been openly but I don't know what sex education is like in schools now but it wasn't kind of one of the things that we were that we were taught about
2: yeah and again I think it's that thing again about having men have that kind of In their head, everyone's picturing themselves as Des O'Connor stroke Mm -hmm. Jagger. So it'd be like, Oh you know, who knows? Why would I? You've got that option. It's always that kind of in the back of your mind there is this funny idea of picturing these two orange men in the future. (laughs) But that will be like I could be like
0: them. Yeah. I could just be a really varnished fat father, that'd be fine.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Ron sealed. I could be like a Ron sealed (laughs) man. Yeah. We, we, like, this seems, we're, we're basically getting to the end of the show.
1: We've Sorry. still got five, we're still, no, we've still got five minutes. We started to, no, do we? No. No, we, we haven't. haven't. We've got two minutes. We've got two minutes. Bloody mm. hell. Okay. No, no.
2: We've got, we've basically got, um, we have got a game to play with you though, Nell. This well, hang on a minute.
1: Hang on, Nat. All right. Uh, thanks, Nell, for talking to us. Um, I'd like to have you you back on because I feel like we uh, didn't really uh, scratch the surface. But uh, we've come to the end of our time. Your book is out, as I said yesterday, Yesterday. on the 11th of February. And I'm going to hand you over to Nathaniel to play our game, better or worse. Nathaniel, take it away.
2: Now, this game is better or worse, you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before it. to score points, you have to say it's entirely from my perspective. <laughs> you have to say whether I think they're better or worse to score points. So, yeah, inside my head. Okay, one, one minute.
0: Inside the hat of Metcalf. Okay. Beginning okay. with Lucy Lou.
2: Is Jennifer Jason Lee better or worse than Lucy Lou?
1: Better, better. Oh, really? This is the slowest (laughs) you've ever done it, Nat. This is the slowest you've you've
2: ever done it. Jason Lee, better or worse than Jennifer? Jason Lee, worse. 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 Jason Bateman, better or worse than Jason Lee? Better. 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 Jason Momoa, better or worse than Jason Bateman? Worse. Better, I hope.
3: Worse.
2: (laughs) Jason Statham, better or worse than Jason Momoa? Better. Best. Best. Better. Freddie Mercury, better or worse than Jason Statham? Better. Worse. What? Fred, Fred Savage, better or worse than Freddie Mercury? Worse. <laughs>
3: yes.
1: Better. Better. Just a, a genuine...
2: Freddie Krueger, better or worse than <laughs> Fred Savage?
0: Oh, worse. Better.
2: He's worse. Freddie Kruger? Michael, Michael Myers, better or worse than Freddie
0: Krueger? Worse. That's that's
2: worse. Better, what? Mike Myers, better or worse than Michael Myers?
0: worse I, I'm lost I'm going to say better
3: better
1: better
0: Mike Myers is better than Michael Myers
3: which yeah. is a bitch
0: Freddy Krueger Mike like Mike I Myers
1: is. is Wayne's World Michael Myers yes. is Halloween
0: he's a ah, yes, yes 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 Freddy Krueger
1: could oh. kill Fred Savage in his sleep yeah it
0: doesn't make him a good person
1: yeah it makes him better <laughs> uh, and that was
0: like, a pun.
1: That was a pun as well. Like he could do it in a sleep. you, you got, um, she got six. You got six. Well, you've done. You've done very average,ly I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> um, Thank all I've ever hoped for. He's got a six, which isn't as good as Jen Brister, Thomas Coombs, Jason Manford, Joseph Daniel with ten, David Patel, Ken Cheng, Harry Hill, Luke Morley with nine, Matthew Crosby, Susie Dent, Charles Esther, Eddie Hearn David Hepworth, Jason Isaacs and Simon West, John Art and Niven, Magical Bones, Matthew Morton, Matt O'Kine, Miranda Raisin, Griffiths Jones, Chris Stark, Stu Whiffin with eight, Richard Herring, James King, Ludi Lynn, Henry Normal, Janet Varney, Johnny Vegas with seven, but you are as good as Gary Delaney and Frank Harbor with six, and better than poor old Dave McLean with five. Um, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you again. Good luck Thank with your book. Yeah.
0: Uh, Thank you so much.
1: Lockdown, um, and don't go. And uh, we will see you uh, sometime in the future. And, And listeners, thank you very much. I hope you're all safe. And tune in next week and send in your fan mail. Brilliant. Thank you very much from me. Goodbye.